This is Open to Hope Radio, featuring Dr. Gloria Horsley and her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley, coming to you on behalf of the Open to Hope Foundation, dedicated to those who are looking for hope after loss. Welcome to the Open to Hope Show in partnership with the Compassionate Friends. I'm your host, Dr. Heidi Horsley, and I'm here today in the New York City studio with my mom and co-host, Dr. Gloria Horsley. Hi, Mom. Hi, Heidi. It's fun to be in the studio with you today. I'm usually on the telephone, and especially nice because we're going to be on with a very nice person, and it's fun. And I know he's in New York, but he's on the phone. So uh, anyway, he's a good friend of ours. So why don't you introduce him, Heidi? I will. And our guest today is a real, true New Yorker. He seriously is, and we've had his son, Jordan, on also. Uh, We are going to be talking today with David Ferber, and we are going to be talking about a dad's grief. David Ferber is a lawyer and the bereaved dad of Russell. He and his wife are longtime members of the Compassionate Friends, and their son, Jordan, works with the Compassionate Friends sibling group. The family sponsors a yearly comedy night in Manhattan to raise money for scholarships in Russell's name. Welcome to the show, David. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. And I've got to say, first off, that I absolutely love your comedy night in the village in honor of Russell. It is so incredible. The comedians are absolutely the best. They are hysterical. And I look forward to it. And can you let us know when it is going to be this year in June? Thank you for the the opportunity to quickly plug it. June 28, Wednesday evening at uh, Village Community School, 246 West 10th Street between Washington and Greenwich Streets. Talk about, uh, David, about the school that's going to be at, because Heidi was telling me Mm -hmm. something about it. Oh, well, uh, the location is the Village Community School Theater, um, and and that's the the street address that I just mentioned. Uh, It's also uh, important to us because uh, it's the school that our son, our deceased son, Russell, went to. Uh, It's a K-8 school, and he was there... um, uh, for most of, most of that entire period of time, and so it's important to have for us. It's important to have the um, the annual benefit event in in that facility, um, and they're wonderful in, in in providing it for us and and supporting us uh, in every way that they can. And they and and that that school happens to be one of the three beneficiaries of our uh, of our foundation's uh, 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 fundraising. That's really cool. And I love going to the school and thinking that, you know, Russell was in the school. Russell and your son Jordan were in the school together as kids. It's amazing. And, you know, I've got to say, I went to, when I first went to your event a few years ago, it's absolutely gut, gut-wrenching, hysterically funny. Everybody's laughing and laughing. And I said to Jordan, you have got the best comedians in the whole world. He goes, Heidi, what do you expect? I'm a stand-up in New York. I get the best. And it's just amazing. So if people out there that are if people are out there and they need to laugh and they want to go to a place that will give them a break from the sadness of their grief, please go to this event on June twenty eighth. Yeah. Fun. Thank you for the plug. <laughs> Love it. Now uh, uh, people do come away that evening. Um even those who, who come sort of with a heavy heart supporting us in what they think is a really sad and, and grief-laden uh, event, and they go away feeling great. And everyone knows that uh, Russell Spirit was having as much fun as, as, as all the live spirits sitting in chairs uh, watching the show. You know, um, 
It's so what must be so wonderful to hear Russell's name. I don't think people realize how much we uh, bereaved parents love to hear those kids' names. I agree. Um, we, we we take every opportunity to talk about him um, <clears throat> to. Uh, to a fair degree, uh, boring our family members who've heard some of the stories many, many times. Um, but in fact, we're sort of driven to keep his memory alive um, for other people, and of course for us ourselves as well. So the more people we talk to about our son, reminding them of him with stories that hopefully stick in their memories, because you, you, you're not going to tell the boring stories. You're going to tell the ones where he was a devilish uh, child or uh, an annoying adult, but still a lovable human being. Well, and tell people uh, out people there about, about about him, David. I know that he was a chef, but tell us about him for those of uh, those out there that don't know him. Well, he he, he was uh, he was a, a natural born entrepreneur, um, and I'd talk about um, things that he did at a very early at a relatively early age. We sent him to uh, the uh, Knicks basketball team has uh, sponsors a uh, uh, week-long summer camps for kids. And they have typically college and high school coaches with occasional visits by some of the players to, to their events. And, they, and they're, they're six-day things. You drop your, your son or daughter off on a Sunday. You pick them up on a Saturday. And we, one year we did that with Russell uh, for two, two weeks in a row, though he was home from um, – between the Saturday and the Sunday, uh, between the two weeks. And um, he was, I think, nine or perhaps approaching 10 years old, maybe nine and a half then. Um, between the two weeks, he was home. He borrowed $50 from me. And I asked him what it was for. He said, well, I'll tell you about it later. But it's a small business thing, this from a nine, nine and a half year old. <laughs> I lent him $50. And, and the next weekend, after we picked him back up from Nick's camp, he gave me back my $50. And, and then told me the story about how um, he had a connection with someone who sold uh, make-believe uh, fancy watches, um, you know, dishonest uh, trademarks of Rolexes or Rolexes uh-huh. or whatever it was. And he bought $250 worth of watches at the price that he sold them to coaches. Uh-huh. Borrowed fifty dollars worth for me, bought however many watches, sold them for two hundred and fifty dollars to coaches to whom he had pre-sold them during his first week as, at Nick's camp, and then came home with two hundred and fifty dollars in his pocket. Oh my gosh! And that continued uh, really right on through. Um, always had some little business plan going when he went when he was in high school, when he went away to college, um, and he thought he'd be an NBA basketball player and uh, was very very involved in basketball. Told us not to worry. I'll buy a home for you, mom and dad, in whatever city that drafts me. Wow. The truth is that he was was taking growth hormone for 15 years of his life because he was never going to be anywhere near the size of a basketball player. Mm-hmm. When he died, he was about five, nine and a half, and mm-hmm. though he was still growing a bit. Uh, but that was taller than he'd even been projected to, to be. Wow. Um, somewhere along the way, he got more and more interested in cooking, um, his mother, my wife, is, is a wonderful home cook. And he ultimately dropped out of college and, and, and started working uh, at restaurants in New York, came back. He had been in school in California, came back to New York, started working in restaurants here, and fell in love with 
the 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 whole gestalt, if you will, all of the energy and all of the the intense focus and um, everything that takes place in a professional kitchen. To him, it was like walking into a toy shop. It was it was a winter wonderland, but in a kitchen. Wow! And then he was in wasn't he in chef school? The, the when Culinary Institute, right? Yeah. Well, he worked for a few years, um, and and the last job that he had had was um, working at uh, a restaurant in Boulder, Colorado, where he had become the pastry chef, um, and it was it, it was the only. Uh, fine dining restaurant in in um, a place called the Flatiron Mall, which is one of the biggest um, shopping malls in America, wow. uh, in Boulder, Colorado. And he looked around at some point, I guess, and said, "I've learned all I can about pastry from from all of these people here. I really now need to learn more because I want to be the best." Mm-hmm. And uh, he enrolled at the at the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. Mm-hmm. And that's um, when he was killed in an automobile accident. And he, yeah, he died in a car accident on July sixth. 2002, about a month or a month and a half before graduating. And as far as I know, um, they haven't done it since. And I know that he was the first person ever to be graduated posthumously. Uh, Uh, We went to the graduation uh and they awarded us his cordon, which is a a metal disc on a ribbon. Um, And they put it into a case with a little brass plaque and made a big big thing of it and said... um, they never had thought about it before, but his class insisted that he that he be graduated with them. And one of the things that was sort of uh, somewhat unique to Russell was that he loved what cinnamon did to a lot of recipes. Um, just a little bit of cinnamon he would add to almost any, everything. <laughs> he thought it really brought out a lot of other flavors. And um, as the show of uh, support and, and, and uh, uniformity, uh, for the whole process, when when that graduation took place at the CIA, at the Culinary Institute of America, uh, and they awarded us his cordon, I looked around and all of his classmates were wearing, in addition to a little flower on their lapel, the mm-hmm. way graduates often do, a uh, a, a, a buttonhole flower, uh, they were all wearing uh, a stick of cinnamon uh-huh. dangling from a ribbon and tie, and and also. Um, Fixed to their lapels with a with a little safety pin. Wow, I love every that. Sing, every single kid in the class was wearing that's a stick of cinnamon. Well, and that that that's a, you know a tribute to Russell because he, I know him through Jordan, and you know he was larger than life. And I love all the photos of him. He was just he had just had a big dynamic personality, and just seemed very into people and life. And I love the way your family honors him. And I want you to talk a little bit about your work with the Compassionate Friends because I know that you do a lot with other grieving people and to help them through their journey. Russell's death was, uh, was an absolute shock, of course, for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> uh, my wife, uh, Dorothy, is a very resourceful soul. She, um, I, I really can't quite figure out how, but she somehow had enough going on, uh, was together enough in her, in her mind uh, despite the fact that the rest of us were all in an absolute fog, mm-hmm. uh, such that she somehow tracked down um, the compassionate friends mm-hmm. and um, insisted that she needed to go as soon as possible um, after Russell's death. And, and, and I said, I'm not going to let you do something like that alone. So I went with her. Um, and this was only two weeks after he had died. Yeah. 
when she called and learned about it and spoke to someone to, to find out the, the, uh, the time of the meeting and the location and so on, uh, the woman who was handling the hotline that day said, I think it's way too early. You, you should really wait a few months before you come. And um, my wife was insistent, and we went, and we continued to go. I don't think I, don't think I missed a session um, for years afterwards, and, and, and we attended um, for, gosh, Russell's now gone almost 15 years. We, we, we went regularly, I think, not missing a single, a single meeting. Uh, and the New York chapter meets twice a, twice a month. I don't think we missed a single meeting for at least a decade, maybe f- even a dozen years. Wow. Uh, and my wife Dorothy became the chapter leader and, and, and was that for a couple of, uh, for a couple of terms. Um, I became a facilitator and got a lot of satisfaction out of leading smaller discussion groups and, and then initiated um, a father's group. There, there were typically only a, a, a handful or so of fathers out of a group of maybe 50 or 60 total people attending a meeting, and, and with, with the exception of the five or six men, they were all women. Um, and in some cases, that's intimidating to, to the men in the group. Uh, in my case, it wasn't so much intimidating as that my wife and I both wanted to tell some, some of the same stories about Russell or had similar <laughs> reactions to things. And, it, and so we would sort of step on each other, if you will, Mm-hmm. And I realized uh, after just a couple of sessions that we had to be in separate groups. <laughs> I and, like and, that. I hadn't thought about that before. Mm-hmm. That because I run a we run a chapter in Redwood City, California, and I hadn't thought about the fact that if you do separate, it gives you a chance to tell those stories separate yeah. from each other. And I, if, I and, if and if one and if one spouse is more aggressive in their in their manner, you know, m- m- more demanding of of speaking time, or uh, the other one tends to be to to become quieter. In reaction to that, so it's not it's not so supportive or helpful for the second spouse in some cases. Um, the men, in particular, I think, in, in a lot of situations, felt as if they didn't need the support. Only a few show up because I don't need the support. I'm a strong, powerful person. I don't cry and I don't whatever. You know, I I don't do anything that's outside of the 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 uh, the, the, the norm that the stereotype that's been set for me. Um, some of us found that, in fact, um, that stereotype wasn't nearly so supportive as Compassionate Friends is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we showed up, but there weren't many of us. Um, but then when I realized that some of the men were either like me, feeling as if um, they couldn't really be in the same group as, as their wife, um, others just felt intimidated by or, or felt awkward because the conversation was different from the one that they would have liked to have had some small part in. Um, I started a, uh, w- with encouragement by my wife, who was then the chapter leader. Um, one, one evening we announced that we were going to do a, a group for fathers if they chose to join. They didn't have to, but David Ferber would be running a, a father's group. And um, it was instantly successful. Huh, and from then on, um, f- and, for, and for several years, um, I ran a father's group uh, for when, when we broke up into discussion, into smaller discussion groups. That's nice. Uh, and Jordan now is doing the sibling groups, right? And then Jordan, who, yeah, well, Jordan didn't even want to come with us for the first, oh, I guess, two years. And any, every evening that we would go. And he was at that time living at home. Um, and uh, we'd invite him to come. We're going to Compassionate Friends. And, ah, no, thanks anyway. Finally, as he, as he, has, as he reports, 
after some extended period, he decided that he'd just stop us from inviting him all the time and show up once. He'd he'd hate it, and we and we wouldn't be able to, you know, we we wouldn't then ask him in the future if he in fact had tried it. So he did come one evening, and um, hasn't stopped coming. Well, in the me- now, not only is he co- not a co-chapter leader. Exactly. He's not only is he not stopped. He's a co-chapter leader, and he was just yeah. awarded. At the National Conference last year, the Sibling of the Year Award for all the work that he has done, you know, to help other bereaved siblings and to honor Russell's memory. He is such a big part of the sibling program and a phenomenal guy. I love Jordan. I agree. I love him. (laughs) I agree. You've done a great job, David. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, about Jordan and about children in general, and I know he's an adult child, but... Um, you know, you are now. You now have one surviving sibling, surviving child, and I know there's a lot of people out there that have only one surviving child at this point. And I was wondering if, as a parent, I know this is a really kind of a sticky question, but is that stressful? Or you know, to have one surviving child, do you do you get more concerned? Do you get more overprotective, or not necessarily? In the beginning. Mm-hmm. I was anxious a lot um, when Jordan w- was still living at home. Um, he hasn't been now for a decade, mm-hmm. uh, or even more than that. But when when he was still living at home, um, he was a fully grown. You know, when R- Russell was twenty one, Jordan was uh, tw- twenty three, and then twenty four. Um, well, almost 24. Mm-hmm. I, I guess when Russell, when Russell died, Jordan was 24 years old. Um, he viewed himself as uh, a full adult, obviously, um, though young enough to still feel like he was immortal. Right, right. Yeah, pe- people in their early 20s, in my view, on the whole, think they're immortal. They do things that mm-hmm. um, we late, later years we say, how would I ever – why did I ever do that? What an idiot I was. Yeah. <laughs> Most right. of the time, we, we – sail through and are uninjured. Um, I would be anxious uh, I, I, if I wake up at the 2 o'clock in the morning and uh, visit the bathroom or go for a drink of water or leave my bedroom and notice that my son's bedroom door is open, meaning that he's not home, mm-hmm. um, I would get anxious. Right. And I sometimes, in the earlier period, I think, I probably just stayed up watching terrible television until <laughs> I heard him arriving home, and then I'd sneak back into my bedroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the passage of time, I, I I guess I got over some of that crazed angst and, and became a little more comfortable. And then, of course, he moved out, and I had zero control over where he was or when he was. And the truth is I didn't have it when he was living with us, but um, I it, it's it's hard to be anxious if you, if you can't watch the fact that your son's not at home. Right. So maybe is, you didn't know. That is know. when he's living elsewhere. Right. So you don't know that he's out. And I like how you exactly. kind of snuck back in to your room so it sounds like so that he didn't completely know how anxious yeah. you were. Because so often the, the kids that I work with, adult children and, and young children, say, you know what? We, it irritates us when our parents are overprotective and overly anxious. So it sounds yep. like you did a good job at kind of hiding some of that from him. I, I, I don't know if I, if I was successful, at it, but I do know I went through the, I went through the motions and he never mentioned it. So, and, and it's a normal, and it's a normal reaction for parents out there to be overprotective. And I've got to tell you, I'm a psychologist, as you know, the brain doesn't completely develop till 26. 
And like you said, so, you know, oftentimes we do think we're immortal. And, you know, at 26, I don't know what happens, but we start to go, okay, wait a minute. What are we doing? We're crazy. I think actually it's, it, it was more like 31 in the case of comics. <laughs> <laughs> in the comic world. Yeah. yeah. They spend a little more time on the on the humor side and, and, and a little less on uh, – those things that 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 account for maturity. So so we're going to wrap up now, David. We want to thank you so much. But I want to um, ask you: How do people get a hold of the Compassionate Friends in New York City if they need to find your organization? Oh golly, um, I don't know what the phone number is. I, you have a website though, right? You have a uh, oh, yeah, Compassionate yeah, there is a Friends website. Manhattan uh, the, uh, TCF or the or CompassionateFriends dot org. Okay. Um, I, I I don't. Th- th- I don't know what the distinction is to, to get just to the New York chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, probably, yeah, I think you can get it through CompassionateFriends.org. So. You, you can get it through the National Org, of course. They have, yeah. they, you know, they have a listing of chapters. But the New York chapter does have its own website and, and puts out a bit of a newsletter and has, a, has a, 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 a chat board and has a whole bunch of things on it, I know. Um, one of the people was very uh, active in setting all of that up. One, one of the... Uh, one of our regular compassionate friends uh, attendees, and, and you guys have one of the best sibling programs in the country, thanks to Jordan. I have no it's doubt about phenomenal. that. Phenomenal. It's the best. It's Jordan phenomenal. Is- it's the best. So, any for your parents, grandparents, or siblings, please go to the Compassionate Friends National website and look up your Manhattan, and you will find out when they meet and where they meet. And I want to thank you so much, David, for everything that you're doing out there, for all those brief people, for all the dads and how you're keeping Russell's memory alive, and I look forward to your event in June. Well, I look forward to seeing you there, and thank you for uh, um, open to hope, open for hope, rather, for all that the two of you do. Thank you, David, and uh, have a great day. Thanks, David. Well, Heidi, interesting show, and I know you've loved those comedy nights, and I've I've been down and seen Jordan do his comedy, and we see some of it at the Compassionate Friends National Conference for people who want to come to that. So uh, they're and, a great family. And we've also had David, Dorothy, and Jordan on our cable show. Mm-hmm. So for all you out there, please log on and watch them because they have gotten very, very close. Um, they've always been a close family, and they remain close since Russell's death, and they talk about how you can do that also after a loss. So Heidi and I want to thank you for listening to the show today, and we always want to remind you, if you've lost hope, please lean on ours till you find your own, and God bless. You've been listening to Open to Hope Radio, hosted by Drs. Gloria and Heidi Horsley. Like today's edition, all of our past programs are available on demand at opentohope.com, along with helpful articles, videos, resources, and links to help get you through the toughest time of your life. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Again, that's opentohope.com. Check it out today. Then be sure to stop by next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time when we'll be posting another edition of Open to Hope Radio. Remember, Others have been where you are. They made it through, and you can too, as long as you're open to hope.